long time ago. He did a Bible study, yeah. Yeah. So he will be here on April the 3rd. That's, of course, Sunday morning here to preach. So we're excited about that. Uh, the kids can be dismissed. They're going with Teresa this morning. And Grant, you can come on up and share with us. Always count on Tim for a good ovation. Coming in hot. Okay, cool. All right, cool. All right, guys, we're going to start in John chapter 10 this morning. Now, Marcus will, um, so Marcus and I, we've, Marcus Wick, we've become really good friends. We did a conference back uh, together last summer, and uh, we just connected right away. He, me and him, we talk on the phone probably every week or two at least, and uh, he's just a blessing. If you don't know who Marcus is, Marcus flows in the prophetic more accurately than anyone I've ever known, and uh, I can remember, so like I said, we, 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 started a connection we've had we've been friends for a while and uh we would talk on the phone every day and one day to Keisha I was or not every week and one day to Keisha I was like I thought this dude was some prophet he's yet to read my mail like you know if you're friends with a prophet you're like dude come on read my mail and uh one day we spoke we hung up he called me right back he finally read my mail and it was awesome Amen. So, uh, but it's encouraging. The prophetic gift, when used properly, is extremely encouraging. And uh, Marcus would, he, he will really encourage you. So, um, yeah, we're going to begin with John chapter 10 this morning and verse 22. And, you know, something the Lord has really been doing in my life over the last four or five months is just really. Um, reigniting my passion for the gospel. Um, and, you know, the gospel is a tad bit different than the word, right? The gospel is in the word, but there are things in the word that aren't necessarily a part of the gospel, right? We have, we have the law, um, and although the law is necessary to get us to the gospel, the law is not the gospel, and uh, so I've always been a person of the Word who loves the Word, but over the last four or five months, God's just been reigniting my passion for the gospel, which to sum up, you know, in a few words, the gospel is what Jesus did for us and who we are as a result of what He did for us. And so I've been going around different churches, a lot of doors have been opening, and I've just been preaching the gospel. And sometimes that's in places where the gospel is not really known. And, uh, and it's been interesting. It's been interesting. It's been fun. And, you know, uh, last Monday, I, I was sitting there, and I had reason to be discouraged. Um, again, get some interesting feedback when you go and preach this places where people have never really heard it. And uh, so I had reason to be discouraged, but Monday morning I was like, 
I'm not one bit discouraged. Like, I'm actually more fired up about this message. And uh, the, the verse that God gave to me was in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul says, Paul called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. And that word separated, one Greek uh, dictionary says that it means to, to be placed within a boundary. So Paul was saying, you know, I preach the word, but I, I always come back to the boundaries of the gospel. Um, that was the message. If you compare Paul's writings to that of Peter, to that of John, to that of James, they look very different. Uh, Peter and John and James, those guys really talk to you about how you walk out this new creation, how you walk out this righteousness. But Paul is mostly focused on how you become righteous. Paul is mostly focused upon what Jesus did in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So Paul was saying, listen, I'm separated. My boundaries are the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. Another Greek dictionary says separated means to be selected for a purpose. And, uh, you know, I love to preach uh, different things in the Word. I love to preach principles and, and things like that and Principles, is, it'll get you crucified with some people. But uh, if you say you don't believe in principles, my friend, that itself is a principle, right? I don't, my principle is I don't believe in principles. That's a principle. Uh, the word principle just means the first thing. It means the thing that you're going to build your life upon, that in any situation, this is your default setting, right? That's a principle. But I love preaching on, these, on those things, but my purpose is to share the gospel. It's to teach the gospel, right? And uh, so that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to look at something with you this morning. Let's talk briefly about the why of legalism. Let's talk about the why of performance Christianity. <laughs> Let's talk about the why of why you know people get upset when you talk about the gospel. The why is the need and desire for assurance. Everyone who's out there working themselves to death, trying to please God, they're doing it for one reason. They want to be sure that they're saved. They want to be sure that they'll remain saved. Right? That is the why of legalism. That is the why of performance Christianity. We all want security. Listen, if you're fired up about politics, you know why you're fired up about politics? You want security. Right? We want to know that our future is safe, that our future is secure. So there's a place for all those things. But I'm saying let's bring it into the spiritual. The reason people get into this lifestyle of always, always working for God and trying to please God and trying to make happy is they want to be secure. They want to know that they have a future and that if their life was to end today, they've got heaven, right? That is the why. It is also the why of powerless Christianity because the enemy loves it that we're so focused on trying to secure our salvation, trying to get assurance for our salvation, that we never do anything for the kingdom that we don't tell people about Jesus, that we don't heal the sick, that we don't cast out demons, that we don't speak with new tongues, that we don't, you know, on and on and on. 
Why? Because we're focused on getting that ticket secure. We're focused on, I've got to make sure I remain a citizen of the kingdom. Rather than realizing and coming to the acknowledgement, I am a citizen of the kingdom, and as a citizen of the kingdom, it's time for me to do kingdom things. Right? Not to keep my salvation, but because I'm saved. Not to secure my salvation, but because my salvation is secure. Right? So, so it is also the why of powerless Christianity. So what I'm actually going to speak on this morning is I'm going to talk about the security of the believer. And the reason I'm teaching this, one reason, is so I have something I can tell people, listen, go back and listen to that message. I taught this message on this day. Um, everywhere I go and preach this gospel, it never fails. Either myself or the, the pastor of that church hears as soon as I leave. So he was saying, once saved, always saved. Right? And here's the thing. I don't like the term, once saved, always saved. I don't like very many theological terms because what we do is we adopt theological terms, one, to make the side who believes that look bad and also to dress up our unbelief. For example, penal substitution. That is the fancy theological term that just means a blood sacrifice was required for salvation. So we've adopted the term penal substitution. Why? Saying I don't believe in penal substitution sounds a lot better than I don't really think the blood of Jesus was necessary. Come on. Come on. It's a fancy way to dress up our unbelief. Yep. Come on. So this is me. Do you believe in penal substitution? I believe that the blood of Jesus was a necessity. That it is a necessity. That it is required. That it was not the work of man, but it was the plan of God. Is there a mystery in it? Absolutely. Can I explain every part of it? No. But guess what? I believe the Bible. Right? And so, once saved, always saved is a term that people have come up with. And when people ask you, for example, this is what I always get. Always. This is what people message me or they come up to me at these churches. This is what they say. So you believe in once saved, always saved. And used to, I would say, yeah. You know, just because I'm like, yeah, I guess you can put me in that, that circle. And this is what they would always say. So you're saying, if I fill in the blank. And it's always worst case scenario. Like, it is always like, so you're saying that I can go worship the devil, leave my wife and my kids, you know, it's, it's horrible. And I'm like, who does that? You know, so finally I got to the place where I won't let you brand me once saved, always saved. If you come up to me and say, do you believe in once saved, always saved? I will say no. If you ask me, do you believe, so you believe you can lose your salvation? No. You're asking, is it A or is it B? And I'm saying it's C. Right? So what do you believe? I believe the Bible. All right? So, so here's what I started doing, people. When they're like, so you're saying that I can just go out, worship the devil, and leave my wife, leave my kids, and... Fill in the blank. This is what I started doing. See, because used to, I'd entertain them. I'd explain it. You know, not well, you know, your salvation. You know. This is what I started doing. Do you want to do that? <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. That's the, yep. Are you wanting to go worship the devil? 
Do you want to leave your wife and kids? Do you want to do... Are you looking for me to give you an excuse to do that? And every one of them, when I say that, that's all I say. I just say, are you wanting to do that? And every time, what do you think the answer is? No. And then I just look at them and I say, okay. It's the end of the discussion. It's the end of the discussion. And then people say, well, what about, or if you're, if, you're, if you're really confident in yourself, it's like, so you're saying that brother or sister so-and-so can go do these things. When Jesus was resurrected, in the, book of, in the gospel according to John, he tells, Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. You're going to be crucified upside down. He says it in different language, but that's kind of what he's saying. And history tells us that is how Peter died. He was crucified upside down. And he tells Peter this. And rather than worry about himself, Peter says, well, what about that guy? And he's talking about John. And Jesus says in the Grant Fraley version, you worry about yourself. What is it if this man lives until I come back? You worry about yourself. So when people say, well, well, are you saying that people can just, don't worry about what people can do. What do you want to do? You worry about yourself. All right? Now, can you lose your salvation? No. You can't lose your salvation. Now, why don't I like that term? Because the idea is they're throwing it at people and they're saying they believe you can lose your salvation like you can lose your car keys. That one day you just wake up and you're like, where did my salvation go? Right? That, it don't work that way. Okay? So I don't like theological terms a lot of times. They're just, they're, 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 they're just poo-poo. All right? Um, yeah, we always got to talk about poo. Is that a theological term? I said, I said but last week at this church and it hit me like as soon as that came out of my mouth. Like, they might crucify me because I said but behind the pulpit. And I stopped, I was like, is that okay? You know. And like, I'll, I'll, every one of them's like, no, they, they didn't mind. They was like, no, the pastor yelled, I've said worse. So, you know, so that was good. But, um, so what do I believe when it comes to this issue? I believe the Bible. Specifically, I believe the terms and the conditions laid out in the new covenant. Right? That's what I believe. So let's go to John chapter 10, and we're going to begin with verse 22. He says here, And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, so look here. They, they come to Jesus with this question, and they're basically saying, we're tired of doubting. But what they were tired of doubting is, are you or are you not the Messiah? Today, Christians would ask this same question of Jesus, but it's a little bit different. What we're tired of doubting is our salvation. Am I or am I not saved? Tell us plainly. And he's about to tell us plainly. Verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. The Amplified says they shall never lose it, right? They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now, if you've got a good Bible, here it says, Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That word man is italicized. Here's what that means. That means it's not in the original languages. That means translators added it because they thought that made the meaning more clear and would make it easier for us to read. All right? So it actually says, Neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. Any what? In the Greek, this word any does mean anyone. It also means just any. It, and the one definition for it is anything at all. So let's read it this way. And I give unto them eternal life. Notice, it's not temporal life. When you come to Jesus, he doesn't give you something temporary. And say, all right, now, as long as you've got your act right, you've got life. No, eternal. And they shall never perish, never. They, they probably won't perish. Never perish. Neither shall anything at all pluck them out of my hand. All right, verse 29. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. So he's like, listen, you can't get out of my hand. And there's one who's greater than me. And look here what he says about him. And no man, again, that's italicized, no thing at all is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then he says, verse 30, I and my Father are one. So what, he's, what Jesus is saying here is when you come to me, when you believe in me, there is literally not any thing at all that can take the life that I've given you. There's nothing at all, let me put it in simple terms, there's nothing at all that can take this salvation from you. No thing. Now, when we do, see, as long as we got man, this is the way I used to explain this away. Well, no man can take it from me, right? Nobody can come and say, you're not saved and take my salvation. But when you realize man's not in it, and in the Greek, it literally says, no thing at all shall pluck them out of my hand. Guess what? That includes sin. That includes disobedience. All right? That includes, you fill in the blank of that worst case scenario. So what if I, anything, anything at all, shall not be able to pluck you out of God's hand? What does that mean, can't pluck you out of God's hand? An illustration God gave me on this recently, uh, I was, every day I picked Graham up from school, and uh, usually we have to cross, you know, a little, a little road, and, uh, you know, every time he can be walking beside me, walking behind me, walking in front of me, but he knows when we get to the end of the sidewalk, he's got to stop, he's got to get my hand, right, before we cross the road. Um, and recently when I was doing that, as we were walking across the road and I had his hand, I heard God say, no man shall pluck them out of my hand. Right? So what's he, what he's actually saying to here is our salvation, when we come to Jesus and we place our faith in Jesus, it's as if we put our hand in his hand. He takes us by the hand 
And when I take Graham by the hand to get him, the moment I take his hand, here's what I'm saying. This is my responsibility now. I'm the one that's going to get you across the road. This is my responsibility now. Now, Graham could try to get, get away from me. Graham could try anything. But guess what? I am stronger than Graham. And my grip, when I'm getting him across that road, because I know the danger, my grip is so strong, Graham can't get out of my hand. So Jesus said, the Father is greater than all. And you can't get out of his hand. No thing can get you out of his hand. So just as when I take Graham's hand, and that is me saying, son, I don't even have to say this, but this is what I'm saying. Son, it is my responsibility to get you from here to over here. It's my responsibility, right? That's what God is saying the moment we trust in Jesus. He's saying, listen, I've began a good work in you. It's now my responsibility to finish it. All right? Salvation is God's responsibility. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 23, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, and I've, I've ministered on this a lot here, but he says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. And I pray God your whole, there it is again, W-H-O-L-E, spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is something we do need to understand. Our salvation is progressive. And it comes down to spirit, soul, and body. Now overall, the church has just made the distinction. They use spirit and soul interchangeably, and they just see us as a two-part being. We've got a spirit and a soul, and we've got a body, right? Uh, but usually they say a soul and a body. But actually, and I've preached series on this here before, we are spirit, soul, and body. We have the spirit part of us, which is the innermost being. It is the life-giving part of us. How do I know that? Because James said, as the, as the body without the breath is dead, so the, so the body without the spirit is dead. Or as faith without works is dead, so the body without the spirit is dead. Right? So the, when death is this. Death is when your spirit leaves your body. So your spirit is li literally the life-giving part of you. All right? And Jesus said that which is born of the spirit is what? Spirit. spirit. So when we talk about being born again, what we are actually talking about is your spirit, that inner part of you, becomes one with the spirit of God, and it's your spirit that is born again. It is your spirit that is regenerated. And then we find out 1 John 3 verse 9 says, He that is born of God sins not. And we sit there, and, and man, I, I was around a lot of this stuff. We're like, well, right there it says, If you sin, you're not born of God. No, the part of us that's born of God is our spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the moment you get born again... Your spirit is made righteous, it's made holy, it's made without sin, it's justified, it's, it's heaven ready. And what God does is He takes His spirit 
and he surrounds your spirit, seals it, just like you would a jar, just like, man, I grew up, my grandma, uh, you know, she used to can and stuff every year, and she would seal it, right? And we could put it anywhere knowing nothing was getting in and nothing was getting out. That's the way it is with our spirit. But when you say salvation is progressive, people get nervous because they're like, oh, wait a minute, so you're saying that I could pump the brakes on that baby, right? I could stop that from being finished. No, salvation is God's responsibility. All right, so then there is the soul of man. I know you guys know this, but I, I think we need to go over it. Then there is the soul. The soul is different than the spirit, but they both make up the inner man. Right? Hebrews 4.12 says to the dividing of the spirit and the soul. So they can be divided. The soul of you is your mind, it's your will, and it's your emotions. So the reason I want to bring out this progressive salvation is because people don't understand how you can be born again yet a mess in your emotions. You can be born of God, united forever and eternally with Him and still be having all kinds of stuff going on up here. That's how come you can be born of God and still have those thoughts and you think, okay, there is no way I'm heaven ready with thoughts like that, right? That is your soul. And the book of Hebrews actually says the end of our salvation or the completion of our salvation is the saving of our souls, all right? And then there's the body. Listen, we were created to live immortal, eternal in these bodies, that's why death is not natural. People say they died of natural causes. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as dying of natural causes. Death is not natural. Death is worldly. Death is carnal, but death is not natural. We were not created to experience the separation of death. That's why when somebody close to you dies, that's why it's just like you're never, the, it's like a little piece of you leaves. Why? Because you were never created to experience separation like that. You were never created to have to live in a world where you're experiencing death. So the good news is God's going to get us back to that place where we never experience death. We're going to live immortal. We're going to live with incorruptible bodies, and that moment will take place when Jesus returns and we receive our new glorified bodies. That will be the salvation of our bodies. So we see our spirit over here, it's saved past tense. That's the, and, and the Bible also calls that, Paul calls that a down payment. Now let me ask you this. If you give somebody a down payment, is it possible to not give them the rest? You can, but I guarantee you get sued and they do get their money. When a down payment's given, I, this is the, the illustration I always give. A few years ago, Keisha and I bought a house and a few years later we sold that house. When we bought that house, we made a down payment. And now we end up selling that house for like 20000 more than we agreed to buy it for, right? We did not get all, I think like that, I think we sold that house for like 120000 We did not get all $120,000 back. Why? Because we had made an agreement with the bank. We gave a down payment, we started making payments. So before we got our cut, we had to give the bank the rest of the money, Right? The down payment had been given. The contract had been signed one way or another. Even if they had to take us to court, they were getting the money. Now, here's the good thing about God. You're not going to have to take him to court. He's good with his word. 
right? So our spirit, we can say, I am saved. I have been saved, past tense. That's your spirit. Your soul is in the process of being saved. This morning, as you hear the word, as you hear the gospel, your mind is being renewed and your soul is in the process of being saved. And your body will be saved when Jesus returns. All right? So past, present, future, there's this progress of salvation. So when people hear that, they think, okay, I get people, I get grace people. They get upset with me when I talk about spirit, soul, and body. And it's because they think I'm saying there's a chance that God won't finish it. Look at verse 24. So after he talks about spirit, soul, and body, look what he says in verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you that will do it. So he says, I pray to God that your spirit, soul, and body will be presented blameless. And he says, guess who's going to... And here's the good news. You don't have to do that. God is going to do that for you. Why? Because he's faithful. He's given you a down payment. The rest is on its way. All right? Can we see that? Look here at Philippians 1.6. Now, here, here for a minute. I'm just going to read some verses. Like, it's all I'm going to do. Philippians 1 verse 6. Being confident of this very thing. This is where every believer wants to be. Every believer wants to be in this place where they are confident of this very thing. All right, That they are confident in their salvation. That they are confident in their union with Christ. Look here being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let me sum that up. He started it. He'll finish it. All right? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here it is. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You talk about fear and trembling, that verse used to make me fear and tremble. Because here's the way this is read. This isn't... We See, you've got to do some... You've got to slow down sometimes and think, how do I read this? Because we read our preconceived notions and traditions into verses. I'll give you an example. Romans chapter 8 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be revealed of the glory which shall be revealed. Every one of us, even myself for years, quoted to us the glory that will be revealed to us. And the idea was when we get to heaven, the glory is going to be so great, we're not going to care about all the, the suffering of this world. There's truth in that. But it says it's not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. The glory's in you. And when you stand before Jesus one day, you're going to look down and you're going to be like, I had this glory in me the whole time. I had this immortality in me the whole time. I had this salvation in me the whole time. Healing in me the whole time. Provision in me the whole time. Peace, joy, love in me the whole time. The glory is going to be revealed in us. That is why. Have you ever wondered why God will have to wipe away tears from our eyes? We made it. We're not going to be crying, oh my gosh, uh, you know, this, all the bad stuff. We're not going to be, we made it. Like, you're in, you're good. Why are we crying? Because the glory was there all along. And so many of us don't recognize it. None of us will ever get to fully realizing it in these mortal bodies. 
All right, that's why Paul said, listen, I long for this mortal to put on immortality, to be clothed with its incorruptible body. Why? Because then that hindrance that keeps me from seeing the glory, that hindrance is gone, right? It's going to be renewed. All right, so look here. So, but we, what we do is we read this as if it says, but now much more in my absence, work for your own salvation with fear and trembling. But it doesn't say for, what's it say? Out. Verse 13, look at this. It says, for it is God which worketh in you both to do, to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you start thinking, oh gosh, I've got to work this thing out. I've got to work this thing out. And then it's like Paul stops and, says, and he says, listen, all you're doing is letting out what God is doing on the inside. Why? God took you by the hand. It's, your, it's his responsibility to get you to the other side. Right? So it would actually do us better to read it this way. It would do us better to read it backwards and to begin to read verse 13 and then verse 12. It is God which works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now work out your own salvation. Right? So it's not talking about work it out like a math problem. It's literally saying let it out. Let it out. And you know why people aren't letting it out? Because they don't think it's there. They're too busy working for it, not working it out. All right? Let's, re let's read another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, begin with verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by Him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look here. Who shall com also confirm you unto the end. It's not something you do. It's something that He promises He will do. That you may be blameless. Now listen. That you may be all italicized. It actually says this way. Who shall confirm you unto the end. What, what do you mean by that? blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's got you, and when he presents you to himself, he's going to have one thing to say, blameless, spotless, without a single fault, the New Living Translation says. All right, verse 9. Look here again. God is faithful. Here's why you, you will always doubt your salvation if you keep asking yourself, am I faithful? It's not about you being faithful. It's about Him being faithful. By whom you were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Another one. Jude. It's only one chapter. Jude 24. Like I said last week, I went to another church and, when I, and I presented the gospel to them and I was like, i got to have a lot of Bible to back this up. And I sent them that information, and I was like, I bet that guy's like, I better get there four hours early in the morning because we're not used to this. And, and he came to me, and he said, that was a lot. I was like, you're welcome. So, that's a... <laughs> Verse 24 says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. This is big. 
Because people who say you can lose your salvation, another term they often use is you can fall. Well, if I fail, then God let me. And ain't nobody going to say God let me, right? Now, unto him that is able to keep you from falling, just like when I lead Graham across the road, I've got two, two responsibilities. Not only do I want to get him across the road, I want to get him across the road safely, okay? How many knows if I've got him by the hand and he still falls and, and scrapes and cuts himself and bruises himself all to pieces, I still failed to a degree, right? But God is able to keep you from falling, and look here, and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. What do you do with those verses? All those verses right there say over and over, every time they make you think that something has to be completed, it always, it, it never just ends there. It always calls you to the fact that it is God's responsibility. So I'm going to take the burden off your shoulders this morning. Your salvation is His responsibility. So you're saying, I don't have any part to play. You do have a part to play. All right? You do have a part to play. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Is this blessing anyone this morning? Amen. Colossians chapter 1, beginning verse 21. It says, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Look here. Here it is again. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now this is important. Those three words, don't look over those last three words, in his sight. Now, I think it's the New Living Translation that says, uh, holy, spotless, and without a single fault. Something I know the last one's without a single fault. I love that translation right there. All right? But look here, it's in his sight. Listen, the more I spend time with believers, the more I realize I better adopt God's side of them. And the more time you spend around me, the more time you, the more you will realize I better see things the way God sees. Because if you just look at me in the natural, spend some time with me, you'll eventually see or hear something that kind of changes your perception of the perfection. Right? We're real see, that's the difference in like what I love about grace compared to what I hate about legalism. We can be authentic. We can be ourselves under grace. Why? Because grace-based communities are communities that are looking at one another through the lens of Christ. We're looking at one another as holy, blameless, and without a single fault. We're looking at one another as faultless. All right? But look here, verse 23. What's my part? If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So what's your part? Believe. What's your part? Keep looking at Jesus. And here, again, when I teach this, or when I say this, like then there's grace people that jump onto me. They're like, so what if, somebody, what if somebody loses their faith? Listen, I've been in church all my life. I have yet to see someone lose their faith. Now, I have people that have maybe stepped outside of the church, that maybe have rebelled, did their own thing for a while, but when you get talking to them, they still have this confidence in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's like God is like, all right, 
Because God works in a partnership, right? So if we take this idea and we say, listen, God saved you and He's going to force you to be saved for the rest of eternity, right? We're, we're, we're taking partnership out of it. It's, it's, it's still a partnership, but God's like, I'm going to give you the easiest thing to do. What is it? You keep looking at Jesus. You keep looking at the truth of the gospel. It's the easiest thing to do. Especially once you've seen the goodness of God. God forbid we'd ever turn our eyes away. Right? We just keep looking to Jesus. Look here at one more. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. So the book of Hebrews, we've got the two chapters that people use there to say you can lose your salvation. Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10. Not realizing that the willful sin that's spoken of in the book of Hebrews is what? Unbelief. It's taking your trust, it's, no, it's rejecting to put your trust in Jesus. Alright, look Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 and 2. So notice here, this follows after chapter 11 where it's just talked about by faith, through faith, with faith, right? All, all these things these Old Testament saints did. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Listen here. Looking unto Jesus. Now the illustration that he's given here, he's actually calling something back from the Old Testament. Jesus talked about, before he talked about in John 3.16, you know, whosoever believes in me shall have eternal life. He gives the illustration that just as Moses put a serpent on the pole. Now here's what happened. The people disobeyed God. God sent fiery serpents among them. It would bite them and they would die. So God tells Moses, go and put a brazen or a bronze serpent upon a pole. Now a serpent is, is a type of what? The enemy, right? It's a type of Satan. And it was bronze. Bronze is a type of judgment under the law. So it's literally what it's calling to our attention on a pole. It's calling to our attention how him who knew no sin would become sin for us, right? And there he would be judged for that sin. But all the people had to do was, listen to this, they didn't have to touch it. They didn't have to obey it. They didn't have to kneel before it. All they had to do was look at it. Anybody there, after that bronze serpent was put on a pole, anyone who died could never blame God. He gave them the easiest part. All right, look. All you got to do is look. Like if I tell everyone right now, look out that window. Look, right now, everybody look out that window. How easy is that? That's the easiest thing. I could have told you, all right, Everybody in here do 20 push-ups. Some of us would have struggled to do 20 push-ups, right? Hey, listen, me too. Don't worry. I would have struggled too. But it's like we think that God's saying, I need you to do 20 push-ups. And all God's saying is, I just need you to look out the window. If you'll just look out the window, you're good. Right? And listen, here's one. This is make your head spin. They only had to look one time. Man. It's that good, and listen here, it's that easy. <laughs> God made it so easy, but man makes it so complicated. 
Look here. Let's finish. Looking unto Jesus, the author. So you got saved by faith. Who gave you that faith? You got that faith because you looked to Jesus. And when you look to Him, faith is automatic. You can't look to Him. Genuinely look to Him. Just like right there, you can't look out that window and not have to dim your eyes a little bit. Why? Because it's bright out there, right? You look out there, your eyes are going to dim. Even just You might not even notice it. Your eyes dim a little bit when you look out that window. right? When you look to Jesus, faith comes. All right? So... We got that faith by looking to Jesus. Notice, but here's where we mess up. We say, all right, you got your faith looking at Jesus. Now you keep your faith. You got to keep and stay in the faith. No, you keep your faith just the way you got your faith. You look to Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. All right. Now I want to answer some questions. All right, so our, our, what's our response? His responsibility is to save you. Your responsibility, you just look to him and let him do it. All Graham has to do in that illustration of walking across the road, all Graham has to do is let me lead. That's all he has to do. Just, just trust Dad. Look to Jesus. What are you doing? I'm just going to trust Dad. I'm just going to trust him. He's going to get me across the road. You just look to him. But here's the problem. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, and, and this is how we're going to close. I've got a few more places, but I want to finish this message by looking about the yeah, but what about? So I covered the, so you're saying that if I just go worship the devil, right? We've already talked about that. Now I want to talk about the yeah, but what about verses. And there's two that I want to look at specifically, and they come from the mouth of Jesus, so they are important. right? We can't just ignore them. We can't just toss them out. We can't just throw them out. Matthew chapter 7, it's beginning with verse 21 through 23. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So this is the idea that people give. You better be careful that you're actually saved. You better make sure that you're the real deal. Now, I started to teach on it this morning, but I'm probably going to teach on it here in a couple weeks about the wheat and the tares. People have made a ministry out of pulling up tares. What's tare? Tares look like wheat, but it's not wheat. It's actually poisonous in, in, in that part of the world at, in that time. But Jesus actually said, so Jesus in that parable, these people, they say, Lord, should we just go pluck up the tares? He says, no, if you pluck up the tares, you'll hurt the wheat. So we've made this ministry of making people doubt their salvation because we're so afraid of something fake being amongst the real. And Jesus says, that's not your responsibility. He says, in the end, when the Son of Man comes, He will separate the wheat from the tares. Right? It's His job, not yours. All right? So, but we've caused people to fear, what if I'm a false convert? What if I really didn't get saved? Right? Well, well, because it says right here, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter in. Right? Here's what this tells me. We're going to get into this in a minute. But here's what this tells me. When it says... 
Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Didn't we heal in your name, cast out demons in your name? You know what that tells me? That tells me that's not the main thing. All that tells me is that healing, not the main thing. Prophesying, not the main thing. Casting out demons, not the main thing. That's all that tells me. It also tells me that those things are actually based on spiritual laws and almost anyone can operate in them, but that's another subject for another day. All right? But, look here in verse 23, Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Now here's the idea. I, I grew up with this teaching. You can get saved, but you can backslide. And if you die backslid, that's when you, if, if you was to die or Jesus was to come back, that's when you're going to hell. Here's the problem with that. One, let me start here. The word backslide or backslider is never once mentioned in the New Testament. Not one time. Now, it is mentioned in the Old Testament as they are a backsliding nation who were, who were in covenant with God and, and they went and worshipped other gods. That's what it meant for them to be backs, a backslidden nation. So there is no verse in the New Testament that even suggests a believer in Jesus Christ can be placed with the label backslider. My wife, listen, where we live, my wife and I, we hear that all the time. People come to us, we hear it all the time. You know, your husband's a preacher, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I'm a backslider. You know, that's what people say. It's not a New Testament term. At some point, we have to come to the conclusion the cross changed a few things. How can you backslide from someone who's, who, who has united himself with you and sealed you so that nothing can break that union? Right? And look here. Let's say, though, let me entertain you and say that there could be a New Testament backslider. Jesus here says, I never knew you. Has he known the backslider? At one point, he knew the backslider. All right? So... Yeah. Now, verse 21, notice who gets the entrance into the kingdom. Those who do the will of my Father. So it would behoove us to see what is the will of the Father. Go with me to John chapter 6 and verse 28. So what about? What about those who don't get entrance into the kingdom? All right? John chapter 6, verse 28. Then said they unto him, the disciples, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God. You want to do a mighty work for God? Here it is. Believe on Him whom He has sent. You want to work for God? Believe. All right? Verse 30, They said therefore unto him, What sign? All right, they're like, All right, He ain't going to give us nothing there. He's going to tell us it's all about faith. Well, that's, you know, I need more than that. We're never satisfied with just faith. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe that what does thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Like they're so carnal. They're literally thinking this man is about to pull out a loaf of bread and feed it to them. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. 
He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father hath given me shall come to me, and him that comes to me, listen to this, I will in no wise cast out. But yet then we turn around and say, but if you, turn, if you start turning around, he's going to give you the boot on out the door, right? Look here. Let's keep reading. It gets better. Verse 38. For I came down from heaven. Here we go. Not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. He's going to tell us what the will of God is. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing. So if you're saying, that someone could be saved and then lose their salvation. Guess what you're saying? Jesus failed in his mission. All right, look here. Let's keep reading. But should raise it up again at the last day. Verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me. He's going to make it more clear. That everyone which, look here, sees the Son. All you got to do is look. And believes on him may have everlasting life. So listen to me. If you say that someone can be saved and then not be saved, or that someone can lose their salvation, here's what you're saying, that Jesus failed to do the will of God. We think that we're preaching, I failed, right? You failed. But what we're actually preaching is, he failed. Why? Because it's his responsibility. So we got to be real careful that we're not going around saying that, listen, yet so-and-so lost their salvation. Why? It's not theirs, it's, it's not theirs to lose. Right? Faithful is he who began a good work in you. So who are those who, who don't do the will of the Father and, and, get, and don't get entrance into the kingdom? It's those who refuse to look. It's those who I said, look out the window, and they looked over there at that wall. It's that simple. It's as simple as look at that window and you look at the paintings. That's nice. Love those paintings. But I told you to look out the window. Right? Muhammad, fine. Buddha, fine. Whatever you, your own self, fine. But I, he said look out at the sun. He said look to the sun and be saved. Right? It's that simple. Just look to the Son, and be saved. So let, let's look at one more back in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is actually my, this is my favorite one. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, when you preach that it's as simple as faith, that it's as simple as looking to Jesus, here's, this is usually the verse that I hear. Now, no, Jesus said that only a few would get in. Right? Only a few would make it. Now, he did say that. That is what he said, but let me just give you something to think about. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. So Jesus says only a few are going to get in. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude. 
Listen here. Which no man could number. Now, I don't know about you, but I can count a few. Graham likes to play his little game. Graham loves to count things. And he'll say, Dad, let's count. Let's count the when he, when he was just learning to count, and let's count the 50, cool, I can do that. Well, now he's like, Dad, let's count the 10 million. And I'm like, son, it ain't going to happen. I'm like the Apostle John. I seen a number that no man could count, right? So here, what do you do with that? Well, let's, let's just read on real quick. I saw a number which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and, uh, and fell before the throne of their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Now look here. Listen to this so there can be no doubt what we're seeing here. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came there? Where did they come from? And listen to what John says. He's so smart. Sir, you know, if God asks you a question, I got a newsflash for you. God's got the answer. Well, he's asking you because you don't know, right? Um, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto the fount, living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So who, who are these people? They're believers. They're saved. They're washed. They're, 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 they, they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they've trusted in the finished work of Jesus. They've placed their faith in Jesus, and here they are before God's throne. This is a real people today. See, we read things like that, and, and because we can't see it, we, like, we, we don't really think it's real. There are literally people standing before the throne today doing this. Now, I'm not saying you're just going to, you're, they're just, everybody's just sitting up in heaven. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this is a real people that right now are in heaven that are so thankful that it was as simple as look. There's Jesus, I love what Jesus said at one point. He said, you know, talking to the Pharisees, he said, do you realize the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to go in before you do? He didn't say those who were prostitutes. He said the prostitutes will enter in before you do. Why? All they got to do is look. And I'm going to tell you something. When they look and they see Him, they'll be transformed into that image. Right? It's as simple as looking. So, what do we do with that? Jesus said there would only be a few that enter in, but here's John, and John's saying, listen, I couldn't count that number. It was so high. It's like me and Graham. Count to ten. Son, I'm good. Let's count. Let's get started. Count them 10 million. Listen, you're on your own, bub. You know, not going to do that. What do we do with that? What changed in between what Jesus said and what John saw? See, because John wasn't prophesying. He's seen this. 
This is a reality. This is fact. Jesus was teaching, but John saw. So what, what happened in between the Sermon on the Mount and John's vision in 90 AD? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I want to show you something real quick. Exodus chapter 34, and I'm going to show this really quick and then I'll kind of uh, conclude. Exodus chapter 34. So what's just happened here is, in verse 27, Moses has went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and the instructions about the tabernacle. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, speaking of the Ten Commandments, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and neither did eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Look here, verse 29. This is all I want you to see here. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. So after he gets the law, he comes down from the mountain. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been reading, is Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. Go with me to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. So Moses gets the law, and then Moses comes down from the mount. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he come down, when he was come down from the mount. So just as Moses was up on the mountain and got the law, Jesus was on the mountain. But now I like what it says here. When he came down from the mountain, what happened? Great multitudes followed him. See, what Jesus was actually doing in the Sermon on the Mount, now it's not that there's none of it that's applicable to us today that we can apply, but what Jesus was doing on, on the ser with the Sermon on the Mount was he was bringing the law back to its intended purpose. The problem has never been with what was written, but it's how we've read what is written. And so here's what Israel did. They made everything about the outward observance. They separated it from the heart. And God, when you read the Bible, one thing has to stick out like, like a sore thumb. God is a heart God. Got news for you. God cares a lot more about what's going on in your heart than He does what's going on in the Middle East. God cares a lot more about what's going on in your heart than, than He does what's going on in D.C. Right? God is a heart God. Because God knows if He can get your heart, He can impact D.C. If He can get your heart, He can impact the Middle East. Right? But He's a heart God first and foremost. So what Israel had done is they, they, they were able to say, the Pharisees, yeah, we've never committed adultery. And then Jesus comes and he says, yeah, but you've looked at a woman to lust in your heart. That's the same as committing adultery. He was bringing it back to the heart. Oh, well, we've never killed anybody. Well, you've never killed anybody, but you hate me. And if you hate me, it's a, you would, the very fact that you hate me tells me if you could kill me, you would. And the day was coming that they did. But it began in their heart. See, what Jesus was doing was he was putting the, the law back on the pedestal where it belonged. So what's all that got to do with only a few will enter in? The weakness of the law was our inability to keep it. Because it didn't, it didn't make a new creation. 
It gave us these commandments. It gave us these laws that were holy, just, and good. There are still things that I think we should look to, we should model our life after, but never for righteousness. Never to be right with God, right? But they're still holy, just, and good. You still shouldn't commit adultery, right? You still shouldn't murder. You you still shouldn't uh, covet. All these things are good, but the new covenant creates within you a new creation. And the new creation, not only can it not commit adultery, it can love its wife or its husband, right? So what Jesus was doing, and Paul did the exact same thing. People could come and say, Paul, you're just saying do away with the law. Paul's saying, no, I'm the one establishing the law. You're the one who says God comes and winks when you, don't, when you can't keep one out of the ten, right? But I'm the one who's saying that the law is so perfect, God requires 100% completion, right? But Paul's saying, guess what? Here's the news. The flesh is your weakness, so you'll never be able to do it. So God became a man and did it for you and credits that to your account when you believe on Him. Under the law, under the old covenant, I can only think of three people that it refers to as blameless. All right? Um, One of those people are uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias, John the Baptist's parents. And there's one more right now that's, that's slipping my mind, but... I can only think of three people that are referred to as who lived under the old covenant who were referred to as blameless. Now, three, going back to what I say with Graham, baby, I can count three. One, two, three. Would you say a three? Would you say three is a few? I would say that's a few. But we read three or four verses today that says every believer who has put their faith in Jesus will be presented before him. What? blameless. Every believer. And they say, two billion people right now in the world will say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, right? And most would say that number's probably not that high because, you know, there's false converts. I say that number's higher, right? But here's the thing. Even if it's two billion, what's more, two billion or three? I can count to three, but I can't do too big. Now, could I? Yeah, I could, but we're going to be here a long time, right? So the few is the dispensation of the law. The law was so perfect, it required perfection, and we weren't able to do it. So under that dispensation, only a few could enter in. But under this dispensation of grace... The number is going to be so great that we're not going to be able to number it. Why? Because it's so easy. So is this proof that, that, that I'm making things too easy? No, it's proof that God had a, a, a foolproof plan. So it's no... It's no coincidence that those who preach there will be a few in heaven are those who believe you've got to keep the law of Moses and the commandments and obedience to be saved and stay saved. Why? That's what that dispensation produces. That's the mindset it produces. Only a few is going to make it. And have you ever noticed those who holler that are the ones who think they're in the few? Right? 
But man, under this grace, listen, when, we, when, when Jesus comes back, when we get to heaven, whatever happens first, listen, we're not going to look around and say there's only a few. A billion years from now, you're going to be meeting new people. And you know, you've all heard the illustration, man, there's going to be people there, there's going to be people I thought I would see, right? You've all heard that, and they weren't there. Listen, I don't know about that, but I promise you, there's going to be people there who you never thought you would see, and they're going to be there. And you're going to ask them, how did you get here and where did you come from? And they're going to say, all I had to do was look out the window. All I had to do was look. And I only had to look one time. He's that good. And it's that easy. But just in the, in the same manner that there is no way that we can get to heaven based on our righteous works. We can't even come close. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely no way that you can mess it up by yourself. Yep. That's right. Because here's the thing. We're saved by grace through what? Faith. faith right? Now, the word faith just means persuasion. There are many people who are persuaded of the truth of the gospel. If you ask them, are you a believer? They'll say, or are you a Christian? They'll say no. Because why? Christian going to church. But they're persuaded of the gospel. Right? But now, let me say this. We're saved by grace through faith. The problem is most most of the church has taught something along the lines of we're saved by grace through baptism. We're saved by grace through confession of sins. We're saved by grace through forgiveness. But we're saved by grace through faith. right? We're saved by grace through trusting in Jesus. So it's the faith that connects you to the grace. And I put it this way. No faith, no grace. No grace, no salvation. But faith equals grace, which equals salvation, right? So here's, here's why I'm saying that. We have this idea that faith gives it, but something else can take it away. What didn't give it can't take it away. You get what I'm saying? What didn't give it can't take it away. Your works didn't give it. Your righteousness didn't give it. So your works... Your righteousness can never take it away. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. And like I said, I know the faith thing throws people off because, again, they're like, well, what about if I start believing in Muhammad? Do you want to believe in Muhammad? You know I mean? like, It's as simple as looking. It's as simple as looking. Everybody in here this morning, I can tell you right now what's, what's going on. You're looking to Jesus because you're hearing the gospel. You're looking to Jesus. So every time something comes at you and says, you know, you might not be saved anymore. The, the thing to do isn't, okay, I need to confess. I need to get to church. I need to be baptized. The thing to do is you look to Jesus. It's that easy. Go ahead, Brian. Here's the thing. You see Jesus, you'll never want, if you really have seen him, you'll never want to turn. Yep. Yep. So if someone brings that up, well, what if I believe this? Well, well they've never received him. Mm-hmm. They've never seen him. If I be lifted up, I draw all men unto me. It, 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 that's the issue. It, God is so strong in his salvation that once you look, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot look upon the glory of the Lord and not 
Right. It's impossible. And just as sure as we look upon, if you look upon him, if you simply believe him, then you will be saved. It's yeah. that simple. And if we would, and if what that produces in us is rest, yeah. trust, and, it, and and what it does is actually empowers righteousness because yep. you quit trying to do it yourself yep. and trust upon the seed of God that's already inside of you to empower you to do it. Him yep. in you to will and do according to His pleasure. Mm-hmm. It it's it's backwards thinking of what we've been taught in religion and what the world operates. Yep. But it's how it is. How it is. It's so good. It's it's that easy, you know. And like I said, I've just so he made it so easy that all we have to do is look to him. Like it's it's the best <laughs> it's the best benefits package ever, right? I mean, it gets no better. He could not make it any better. How weak would the blood of Jesus be if it not be made? If if it weren't so easy for us, like Jesus's sacrifice was so immensely strong and powerful that it made it so easy for all of humanity that's ever existed to simply believe. Mm-hmm. The problem is we don't think Christianity, what we think Christianity is, is a new performance. Yeah. And I've shared this before. When I got saved, I honestly thought I, what I was doing was, okay, God, I'll get my act together now. I'll do better from this moment on. But actually what happened was I became a new creation. It's not about a new performance. It's about a new creation. Right? He, he does the work in you. He literally makes you a new creation on the inside, and He is faithful to continually bring that forth out of you. What do we do? We just, like Graham, me getting Graham across the road, Graham's just got to trust and walk. Right? It is not his respect. He does not have to sit there and sweat and wonder, will dad get me across the road? Will dad get me across the road? Will dad get me across the road? He doesn't even have to be looking and making sure nothing's coming because he can trust me that I'm watching and I'm making sure. Now, he knows to always be looking, but I'm just saying. He can trust me to that degree, right? And that's the way, that's just the way, what do we do? We just let God get us there. We just walk with him, right? We just like, what if, <laughs> this is the way most people view salvation, looking at that illustration. Graham's teachers get up with me sometimes, you know, Graham's had a bad day. It'd be like me picking Graham up from school. He walks out, and I'm like, son, now you didn't do your work like you're supposed to today. You got to get yourself across that road. I'm going to stand right here, and I'm going to watch. Actually, I'm not even going to watch. I'm going to turn my head. You get across the road yourself. That's not salvation. Salvation, even when he's had a bad day, you know what that makes me do? I hold him a little tighter. Like when Graham first started school and he'd have bad days, I'd take like his, he loves PlayStation and things like that. I'd take his PlayStation for the day. You know, after a while, I realized that didn't work. It made him worse. And now when the teacher gets up with me and tells me Graham's had a bad day, we even had a talk like that in a teacher's meeting. I was like, listen, I don't, this, I'm sorry, but like, as long as he's not just being mean to people and stuff like that, like he's just having a bad day, I don't punish him at home. Like I, just, I was just honest with him. I said, I take him home and I love on, love on him more. I do everything I can to put him at peace. Right? So like, like I said, when he's had a bad day, I don't say, all right, it's up to you. I hold him tighter. 
I take the responsibility even more upon myself. I even take him sometimes and get him a treat. Right? And that's the way this salvation thing is. It's not, here's the, here's the gist of it. It's not about you. It's about him. Going back to the book of Revelation, you know something I notice when I read the book of Revelation? Nobody there is ever bragging on themselves. Nobody there is ever praising their own performance. Even though it says, that, you know, blessed are those who die in the Lord from henceforth and their works do follow them. The one who still gets the praise is Jesus. When, whenever, th- whenever this thing is wrapped up and we stand before God, Jesus is going to get all the praise. Because he got us there. Now I've shared, I've taught on judgment and rewards and he's going to turn around he's going to thank you when you thank him. But at the end of the day, He's the one who gets the praise. But now, if it, was, if it was like Jesus gets you saved, but you keep yourself saved, you deserve some of the praise when you get there. You deserve a pat on the back. Guess what? As far as your salvation is concerned, you won't get a pat on the back. All you did was look. That'd be like me saying, you know, like you look, and then me coming and giving you $500 because you looked out the window. What the heck did you do? You just looked out a window. I'm not going to give you $500. You crazy, right? <laughs> That's the way it is with salvation. It's just so easy. You're not going to get a pat on the back for that. Man, you're just, you're just going to say, thank you, Jesus. Amen. So which is it? Once saved, always saved, or lose my salvation? It's the new covenant. Your sins and your iniquities will I remember no more. Faithful is he who calleth you also would do. Amen. Has this blessed you guys today? All right. Well, at this time, we'll take up our offering. If you need to give an envelope, you can raise your hand. Um, Father, we just thank you for this offering. We bless each and every seed sown in Jesus' name. Amen.